Hello and welcome to the Inheritance Podcast. I'm Joe Riley. This podcast was quite a ride. Gunther Weil has known some of the 20th century's most interesting psychologists, including Carl Rogers, Abraham Maslow, Gordon Alport, Timothy Leary, and Henry Murray, as well as such names as Tony Robbins and Eckhart Tolle. We talk about them, his journey in and out of the psychedelic world, and his later work with Jay Hughes and John A. Warnick at the Purposeful Planning Institute, where he was their longtime Dean of Values. Gunther is a deeply thoughtful guest, and his reflections on life, values, transcendence, grace, and his own reflections on the various insightful communities he has been involved in over the years are remarkable. Gunther M. Weil, PhD, is the founder and CEO of Value Mentors, He is an organizational consultant, family advisor, executive coach, educator, and psychologist. For over 35 years, he has provided wise guidance to senior executives, family businesses, and for-profit and non-profit organizations in the areas of value-based leadership and organizational culture, innovation, team building, strategic planning, conflict resolution, and executive wellness. Weil earned his doctorate from Harvard University in 1965 and served as a Fulbright Scholar in Oslo, Norway. His early professional mentors included Carl Rogers, the creator of client-centered psychotherapy, Arnie Ness, the founder of Deep Ecology, and Abraham Maslow, the father of humanistic psychology. Please enjoy my conversation with Gunther Weil. This podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes only. Anything said by the guests or hosts should not be construed as legal or investment advice. Thanks for listening. Are you from Boston? No, I was born in Germany. My family, we escaped Nazi Germany and arrived here in 1939. And I grew up in Wisconsin and Milwaukee. Did my undergraduate work at Kenyon College in Ohio, and then I applied to and received the invitation to become a graduate student at Harvard and be majoring in psychology, social and clinical psychology at Harvard from 1960 to 65, 64. And then I stayed in the area. I taught at Abraham Maslow, gave me my first teaching position at Brandeis, and, and then I taught at well, he stayed there a year, and I dropped out to join Timothy Leary and Richard Alpert around us and Ralph Metzger and the folks sitting who were now living in Millbrook, New York, on the uh, Hitchcock family estate, which was part of, part of the Mellon family. Billy Hitchcock and Tommy, his brother, and Peggy Hitchcock were all friends and associated with us, and they were our patrons, basically. So I, much to my family's, and Abe Maslow invested a lot of political capital in getting me an appointment there, given everything that was happening at Harvard, I decided to drop out, so to speak, and join my colleagues after I'd gotten my degree in New York, in Millbrook. I lasted there a summer because I, I had a pathetic, lucid dream about what was going on with my life and what risks I was putting myself and my family, my two children. And I just had a major epiphany, and so then I left, <laughs> came back to Cambridge, Boston area, and I had to start my professional life over again. But it didn't take, it took me about a year to get my seat on the ground. Now, were you always interested in psychology? What did you study at Kenyon? 
I studied philosophy and psychology. I had a dual major at Kenyon. And then I got a Fulbright fellowship. I went to Norway to study with a gentleman there by the name of Arnie Ness, who was a psychologist or maybe a sociologist, but was at that time was studying the intersection of philosophy and psychology, which was my dual major. And what he was doing was he was through psychological questionnaires. He was going around the city of Oslo and other places, interviewing people on their understanding of philosophical ideas like beauty and truth and certain abstract principles and philosophy to see what the ordinary human being, ordinary person, how they thought about these ideas in terms of the psychology of philosophy. So that, I found that he had a really interesting focus for my work, brought me to Europe for a year. I ended up spending a lot of time in Paris, hanging out with the expats and being part of the bebop jazz scene, which which was close to my heart because I grew up in the Beatnik era. I'm from the I'm from the fifties, pretty much. It's my generation, if you will. So I grew up with all of those influences, and my family was very musical. My father was a pianist and violinist, and I grew up with classical music like a lot. And uh, but I got turned on to jazz early on, the Charlie Parker, Rudy Bebop, and the whole beat scene, and so that became part of my. Age identity, if you will. Living in Europe and hanging out, spending a lot of time in Paris with all these legendary jazz musicians like Bud Powell and Oscar Pettiford and people like that. That was quite remarkable to be in the left bank. It's part of that with all those, with all the Paul Sartre was hanging out at a cafe at, at the end of the street. <laughs> so it was quite a scene. So Anyway, I spent a year there, then I came back, and, and my faculty advisor was Timothy Leary. I didn't know where he was. Uh, he interviewed me. Well, let me back up just a little bit, though. I'm curious what, what an education in psychology was like for an undergrad back then. Were you just reading Freud? No, I was exposed to a, a, a range of psychological ideas. I think my first course was a course in general psychology where I was introduced in a kind of menu fashion to behaviorism and Freud and early uh, examples of cognitive psychology, Kelly working on Kelly and some of these names I've forgotten, so we're coming back. So construct psychology. I happened to have a connection with Carl Rogers, famous psychologist, because my father, who was an academic at the University of Wisconsin, he was the head of the Department of Psychology in Milwaukee, and he knew Carl. So he introduced me to Carl and Carl invited me to go to a summer program. He was teaching at Brandeis. That was between my junior and senior year of college. So I attended a, a two-week intensive program at Brandeis with him. And he wrote me a wonderful recommendation to help get me my Fulbright. So the, the exposure, to answer your question, it was a general introduction to psychology, to the various ideas and movements and theories and personalities that were dominant at that time. Was there anything specific that you learned from Rogers? What was he like? He was a very kind man, very low-key, very much embodied his ideas of kind of trusting the client's own consciousness. And or later, as I began to explore more the work of Milton Erickson and the role of unconscious processes and hypnosis. But Carl was a very, as I say, very kind, very present, very low ego, I found, very gentle. And I was introduced to what was then called non-directive therapy, very different than Freudian analysis or 
standard kind of psychiatric interventions. That was lovely. I, I met some interesting people. Most of the people were older than me. I just happened to get lucky because of my connection with my dad. I still have his letter, actually, written on a typewriter, old style, spraying a bit around the edges, but I still have the original document, actually. What was it like in, in 1961? What was it like when you got there? Who was influential and what did you think uh, as a young student? The summer before the fall season started, I had an internship with Harry Murray. So I spent the summer working with Harry Murray, and he was a lovely man also, although recently I've seen some stories about his connection with the CIA and the really interesting stuff has been coming out about people from that era, apparently. But anyway, Gordon Allport was a mentor also, and the backstory there is that Gordon Allport helped my father get out of Nazi Germany because Gordon had been reading some of my father's research on synesthesia. My father worked at that time with a, a relatively well-known German psychologist named Jens, who was doing pioneering research on, on synesthesia. My father did his PhD thesis on that, working with artists and musicians who tend to be more gifted in that cross-sensory modality. He actually was able to obtain a teaching position for my dad at a small Quaker college in Nebraska. And uh, he was a Quaker and part of the American Friends Service Committee that was doing what it could to help rescue Jews from Nazi Germany. And part of what allowed us to get out was two things. What, his support for, so that my father would have a, uh, some income on some professional work, although it was very little. And, uh, and also that we got out on the French immigration list because my father was born in Alsace-Lorraine in 1905. And later on, through the Treaty of Versailles, after the First World War, that region of, of France, Germany, which has always been disputed, was an order to France. So my dad was born and grew up in a small village in what had then become France. So we had French papers. So he, my mother went to the Gestapo headquarters in Frankfurt and presented his birth certificate and his papers to the Nazi officials. And they released him from Buchenwald, where he had been imprisoned on Kristallnacht, and uh, along with uh, many other of uh, the Jewish intelligentsia of Germany at that time. We got out to a miracle and was able to get on one of the last boats out of Nazi Germany and come to the U.S., first to Nebraska and then to Milwaukee, where my father had a uh, teaching position at an engineering college. So that was, we had some interesting connections. I mentioned Rogers earlier as one of them, but... Meeting Gordon Allport, who played such an important role in our survival, was really interesting. Not only did he play a role then, but he also played a role later on when everything was falling apart with all the politics, with all the psychedelic stuff, and Tim was fired and Richard, a.k.a. Ramdas, was fired. He, there were three of us left, actually only two, three of us, essentially. Two were ready to graduate. Ralph Metzger and George Lipman, who later became a Shackley person at the Harvard Business School. And Ralph became a dean at, at the School of Integrative Studies in San Francisco. And I ended up, I was left, basically. And they wanted to clean house and get rid of me. But Allport intervened, basically, and, and created a safe space for me to finish my PhD. You know, but again, he, he came through again, second time around, around that. Uh, so when you started there, who was your, who was your advisor? Remitulieri was my first advisor. So you got assigned and to him or? 
I was assigned to him arbitrarily, the universal okay. track, the overtime. So I met with him in his little office on the first floor on, on 5 Divinity Avenue, which was a suspicious name, at the Center for Research and Personality, which was a little Victorian house on Divinity Avenue. And right behind that were, was Harry Murray's little colonial building, a separate building called the Annex, I think it was called. Jim held forth in a, what was like a utility closet on the first floor of the Center for Research and Personality that had been converted into an office for him because he was a late hire. David McClellan hired him basically to come to Harvard. And uh, where was the psych department at that point? That they didn't, William James hadn't been built yet. No, you had the Department of Psychology, which was dominated by psychometrics like Stevens's work and Skinner and a whole bunch of other people. Were basically experimental psychology was what the Department of Psychology was. Then there was the Department of Social Relations, which was an experiment in cross-disciplinary collaboration between sociology, anthropology, social psychology. The clinical psychology program was also there. Yes, and again, that was that was the experimental group and Aaron Skinner. So there was always a little bit of kind of tension between the social psychology clinical program and the uh, experimental group. The people who came out of the, the experimental model tended to be very, very prejudiced in a way around the scientific worldview that they embraced. So they considered anything having to do with social or clinical work to be unscientific, if you will, or they didn't pay much heed to it. And they were always competing for resources with those two entities. Did you want to become a clinician? I did. In fact, I, I was trained uh, as a clinician. I did my internship at the Mass Mental Health Center in Boston, which was dominated by psychoanalysts. And I did an internship at the Walpole Prison and a couple of hospitals. But been, and also studied the Rorschach when I worked at Dalmage, or I forgot, there was a, another psychiatric center there. McLean. McLean. Yeah. And I also had, I took a deep dive into the social psychology work. So I had, again, a, I had a double focus and I ended up having a clinical practice for a few years doing psychotherapy. But bear in mind, Timothy Leeward being my faculty advisor and, and sharing with me in the first 10 minutes of our meeting, that he had, the summer prior, had taken psilocybin mushrooms in Cuernavaca. It had totally transformed his worldview that he was no longer interested in, in doing the classical clinical work that he had known for, which in, had involved his writing kind of the most, I would say, the most robust and, and comprehensive book on personality diagnosis. He wrote the book on that topic. He was influenced by Harry Stack Sullivan, the psychiatrist who introduced the social dimension in the psychiatry. But anyway, but Tim had this epiphany and said, I'm really interested in now his consciousness. And I've discovered a tool that, that has showed me more in, in six hours of my life than I had learned in the previous 20 years or whatever it was of psychology. We had a direct experience of multiple levels of consciousness, basically, of out-of-body experience and multiple dimensions. So he said to me, if you're interested in that, Gunther, I'm happy to, you know, to work with you as your advisor. If you're not, you're better, we're both better off. You're finding somebody else. Now, given my background in, in the beatnik era and music and having been introduced to cannabis when I was 15 or 16 years old in Milwaukee by some jazz musicians, 
because I was hanging out on the jazz scene. I had really experienced a little bit of psychedelia with the cannabis. So I, so I was curious. So I said, count me up, count me in. And within a week, within the first two weeks, I had taken my first psilocybin session with him and got married, actually. So the first two weeks, I got married and had my first psilocybin trip. Do you think that Leary left everything behind when he had this experience? So he wrote this book. This was an influential book. I've read it. He made a contribution to personality theory. Do you think he blended that with what he did? Or was it he went off in a completely new direction and left all that behind? Well, he definitely left the old conventional psychology, but there were elements, even in his earlier life and in that book, which suggested, for example, a, a way of working with people that was more democratic less hierarchical. For example, one of the methodologies he introduced, and this was after he had taken psilocybin, that I was introduced to, for example, in terms of our practicum work, was when we were working with individuals, for example, doing therapy, supervised therapy, he introduced a model of audio taping the session with the client, and then with the permission of the client and the client's family, playing the audio of the therapy session to the family of the clients to engage them in the process. So you can see there a, a certain way of thinking about more systemically about family dynamics and a less hierarchical kind of configuration, for example, would be was considered a violation of confidentiality and privilege and all of that. So he was already experimenting with that methodology and some other things. So I think what the, so the psychedelics did was it just magnified that, if you, if you will. And for, and when we did the Concord Prison Project, which you've probably heard about, we were working with inmates there inside the prison, locked in with them in the hospital ward for six or seven hours. And one of us would take psilocybin and one of us would not. One of us would be, we call it ground control. The idea of sharing this experience with a client where we're both, let's say, in, in this kind of transformational state, it's very powerful because it, it, it really changes the game as it was originally defined in terms of the hierarchy. So suddenly there's a Harvard professor, a Harvard graduate student, and here's a criminal who spent a great deal of his life behind bars, and they're working together through these epiphanies, basically. So there's far less of, a, of the doctor-patient role that, that kind of gets suspended a bit. And we're in an entirely new territory with respect to the kind of relationship that were evolving or being discovered and then evolving at that time in that context. Take us through what your first session with Leary was like. What was the session like in 1961? The first session was held at his home in Newton, Mass., he had rented a big mansion from some well-known Harvard faculty person, and uh, he was conducting his sessions there, along with his friend who had been had a sabbatical year at, at Harvard, Frank Barron. You may know that name from the 60s, who was one of the leading researchers in, in creativity, at, I think at UC Santa Cruz. He was there, and he actually, I think, had maybe taken a psychedelic before Tim, and it was Tim to psilocybin. Uh, and Tim acceded because he, he was a dear friend of Frank and trusted him. 
And just to be clear, this wasn't, you guys weren't taking mushrooms. These were like pills from Sandoz or something like yes, that. Or... We, we were receiving monthly shipments from Albert Hoffman and Sandoz. I can still visualize the little bottle with the little pyramid on the bottle. It looks almost like an Illuminatus pyramid. And how did you guys figure out the dosage? It was recommended by Hoffman, basically. They were like little, like, I think five milligram. We ended up doing 25 milligrams, 30 milligrams, which standard dose of, of pure psilocyne. Anyway, at that session, there was the, there was Frank Barron. There was Ralph Metzner. There was the psychiatrist of the Concord Prison Project who was taking psilocybin for the first time. He was an interesting guy. He was a, a black psychiatrist who was gay, who was married to a beauty queen who was his kind of front. And I think it was hard at that time for black psychiatrists to get tra- any kind of traction anywhere. And also being gay, he hid his gayness. But basically, it was very clear from the outset. So he was there in order to experience the, uh, the psilocybin because he was the he was the kind of titular head of the program representing the, the Massachusetts Department of Mental Health and also the Criminal Justice Department. So he was there. And my wife, my, my bride, if you will, Karen, was there and maybe a couple other people. And I, one of the things I, I remember it was so powerful was at one point, Kim standing up and starting to quote passages from Shinnigan's Wake. And uh, I had tried to read Joyce as part of my liberal. I couldn't make head or tear of, of, of Joyce's stream of consciousness writing at all. And Jim had completely internalized being a, a black Irishman himself. And he's very much cut out of that tradition of Brendan Behind and the kind of anti-authoritarian black Irish mentality. That was a characteristic of Jim from the very beginning, all the way through. Whether it was college, West Point, where he got kicked out, you may know some of these stories. Mm-hmm. And then finally, at Harvard. So, Tim hated any kind of what he considered arbitrary authority, and almost any authority he considered arbitrary. And that ranged from whether it was the Harvard faculty to Eldridge Cleaver. So, him reading Joyce or, or quoting Joyce, that kind of captured my attention. He was a Really brilliant man, Tim. Really extraordinarily brilliant. Man. Do you think his his anti-authoritarianism resonated with the, the rest of his generation? Not his generation. No, my generation. And certainly the beatniks already had a good dose of that. And, and then, of course, when the hippie generation came and so on and so forth, yeah, you could see that, that anti-authoritarian or that question authority uh, that to this day it's prevalent. So, what was the? Uh, how did the rest of that session play out? How does what was different about a session then versus uh, like nowadays? People use psilocybin for productivity, but back then it was mm-hmm. y- you folks spent a lot of time together. Yeah. We were exploring. We were on the leading bleeding edge. Okay? okay, basically, we in a way we didn't know what we were doing because we were exploring. So we were taking these deep dives into these altered states with all of the elements of that. The, for example, the extraordinarily shifts in perception in, in sensory modalities, uh, where synesthesia became like a default, okay? So the interesting kind of karma that I had, my father studying, researching synesthesia, and then years later, my actually experiencing it 
in the plantation developed. It's literally, as I mentioned earlier, their connection to, to Gordon Allport and other things. Yes. And then the probably even more significantly, the ability to step back from the unconscious and actually witness the what had what are the unconscious lenses or worldviews and beliefs and assumptions that tend to drive us. That, that arise through our conditioned patterns, to our education and our functional families and, and all the social conditioning and, and so on. So you know, whatever karmic elements that may be at play as well. I use the image sometimes of these are reading glasses, right? I, I put them on and then within seconds, I don't remember. I'm looking through a, a magnification of 1.5 diopters, which is essentially a distortion lens that serves a practical function of enlarging type, so I can read easier. But I, it is a lens that I'm not aware I'm looking through. So I use that as a crude analogy of the worldviews and beliefs and assumptions we have, including, for example, our philosophies of science. Going back to the point I was making earlier about the, the Department of Psychology and its worldview about scientific method versus a more kind of participant observer worldview that relates to social psychology or anthropology or political science, where, or a, a non-experimental taxonomy, if you will. These are different worldviews, if you will. And what happened in, for me, in a way that, that didn't happen with my earlier cannabis experiences, which are just mostly, they create more kind of free association and they create certain sensory and conceptual changes. And they're, and they're a lot of fun. But this was much more profound in terms of actually Witnessing the beliefs and assumptions and lenses or worldviews that that tend to dominate consciousness, that essentially then are unconscious, and they become conscious through the artificial lens of psilocybin and other psychedelics. So that was and that was the epiphany Tim had around the, the pool in Cornavaca when we had this direct experience, and it was my experience, and what most people have. When they first take a psychedelic, if it's the right set and setting, the right dosage, and the right conditions, they have that opportunity. Now, that has many ramifications in terms of healing and also, for example, facilitating passage when someone is dying or has implications for addiction. All the stuff that's being studied now is part of the Renaissance. So you have this amazing weekend in Newton, mm -hmm. and then Monday morning, you're back in Harvard Square. And going to class and, and filling out papers mm -hmm. and, and going to the library. What was that shift like? It was abrupt and sometimes jarring because, again, your nervous system is very sensitized. And I remember being sensitive to people's unconscious aggression, for example, or the way somebody would show up. You could really see how someone's ego was really driving a conversation. Your attempts to manipulate me, or just more sensitive to a sensory aesthetic dimension, as that would show up, and both in a positive and, and so even negative way. So, appreciating, for example, the Charles River in a way that I hadn't before, right? Or sitting on the banks of the Charles. And I'm not high on a psychedelic, but having had that influence and being able to tune into that level of perception. Yeah, so that, but it wears out. Okay, it's not a permanent change. With the psychedelic, the way I talk about it now, and by the way, I have a lot of stuff on uh, YouTube. I've been giving a lot of interviews and uh, around this Renaissance stuff because I'm the last person from that group at Harvard. So having the, through the perspective now of many years 
as I'm talking about this to people, I talk about the psychedelics as a simulation. It's like training on an F-15 fighter simulator, basically. You have all the tools and the controls, and you have a, almost a three-dimensional screen, and you're surrounded by noises. The simulators that they, they created, psychedelics are a little bit like that. You step inside a simulation that gives you an idea of what is possible for a human being in terms of levels of consciousness and how, how to embody more of a spiritual and so-called non-dual understanding of life, of interconnectedness, of a, quant a kind of a quantum level of understanding, if I were to use that language of science rather than spirituality. But it, it, gives you, it offers you that opportunity to see what is possible, but then you've got to go do the work. So for myself and for most of us at that time, particularly the core group, we were exploring a lot of different things. We were exploring the indigenous culture's use of these substances, going back to the Greeks, we started getting exposed to Tibetan Buddhism and Vedic studies. We were I was exposed to the work of Gurdjieff, who became, that became a teaching that became very important for me because I ended up working with a man who in his 70s, at that time, who had worked with Gurdjieff directly. And that was a profound influence on my inner life and our main so, although I'm not involved in any formal groups over these years. So we were studying and researching different experiences, different literature, different traditions, to try to find some understanding on how we could better utilize this technology, psilocybin and LSD, to do deeper research and, and start to explore the applications in therapy and creativity and other things. So including working with Walter Pankey, who was the psychiatrist who had a, a dual yeah, he was an MD and a divinity student and who created the, the the Good Friday experiment, which we worked on. I worked on with him. Were you there at the Good Friday? Yeah. Now, now yes. that was at the that was at the Div School, right? It was in the chapel. No, it was at Marsh Chapel on the BU campus. Okay. And we were working with the Andover Newton Theological Seminary students. Okay. Because the head of that program had taken, I've forgotten his name right now, but he had taken psilocybin a few times with Tim. And by the way, Harry Murray also took psilocybin at least a couple of times with Tim the summer that I was, that I was there in the, prior to the fall program. So he, he and Tim were buddies. Really that, was that before or after he created the TAT? After. I was working on the TAT. That was my, my job was scoring, learning how to score the TAT and working on whatever project. He had multiple projects. So that was my intro. To him, I had the good fortune of, of meeting and working with uh, some of the leading psychologists of that era, including Maslow, who was very interested in peak experiences. He had already done completed his work on, uh, on the needs hierarchy and was really interested in trans in going at the next level of self actualization, which he saw as transcendence. I actually crafted a PhD research thesis a thesis and research on the need for transcendence, modeled in part on the analogy of McFarland's work on the need for power, achievement, and affiliation, which I had studied because he was a dominant voice in the Department of Social Psychology. His work was very legendary in that area. And so I, having had the psychedelic exposure, and I, I, I crafted an idea of working on the, the need for transcendence using a, a TAT-type approach, basically. But once, the, once things were falling apart, I saw that wouldn't work. So I, I shifted my focus to a different topic. But Maslow's work is obviously fascinating and fundamental, 
But one of the critiques that you will occasionally hear is that it's not that easy to become self-actualized. So you get to the top of the pyramid, there seems to be another step. And maybe that's what you mean by transcendence. I would say it's self-actualization is difficult, but, but one can identify various criteria some of which would overlap with what we know we now talk about as emotional intelligence. That I think there are correlations in those dimensions. There are elements having to do with, from a psychodynamic perspective, of what's been called in psychoanalytic or post-psychoanalytic literature, the capacity for autonomy in terms of a developmental model. But you can point to various elements or criteria that, that would constitute self-actualization. Just as an aside, if you're interested, on another occasion, I know she's familiar with my work on values and the work I, I did for many years with uh, PPI and, and John. And I'm no longer engaged with them because I moved on, but I'm happy to talk to you about that because I came full part of my own development as I was evolving and developing this work on values and, and, and worldviews. I could see the connection back to the psilocybin experiences and my family. And so it's a really interesting trajectory in my own professional life and my interests. The question I was really leading up to was, how did all of these things that happened to you in the early 60s and, and afterwards, how did that influence the way that you looked at psychology, but also how you looked at your work with folks in leadership and the high-performing individuals and the kind of issues that they have in their own lives. Um, a lot of these people are viewed as already being self-actualized, but as of course, as when you sit down with them, it's usually a very different story. Sure. sure. It's a very interesting topic. And by the way, I'm really appreciating the uh, depth of this interview and the way you're framing questions. It's allowing me to, allowing me to uh, respond in a way that often or sometimes at least in terms of interviews, which tend to be more like sound bites, although, although I'm not like a soundbite kind of guy. But yeah, so basically I have to address my own spirituality in this context, right? So having been had that early psychedelic experience and being exposed to various literature and readings, and then meeting my first teacher in the Gurdjieff work, Willem Nyland in New York City, who also had a group in Boston. And then deep, taking a deep dive into the Gurdjieff work for about 10 years when he was alive, and it remains an influence. And then studying Buddhism and Vedic studies and Taoism, I became a very familiar and knowledgeable in, in the area of Taoist philosophy and martial arts and Chinese medicine. I've been a practitioner of, of Tai Chi and Qigong for over 50 years. Uh, I'm 86, by the way, and I got a lot of vitality for an old guy. And, uh, and it's because I've been a diligent student and occasional teacher of these in internal arts for many years, along with having been exposed to proper nutrition and other influences earlier in my life. I've been very blessed to know about this kind of stuff, which people are just discovering now. So along the way, my professional so-called outer life and inner life have always been an interesting kind of dynamic. And I haven't gone the route of someone for example, who feels like a conflict between their inner life and outer life. For me, there have always been, everything is sacred, if you will. Everything is a laboratory in which to explore one's inner freedom and one's sense of service and one's one of the years for. Why am I here, basically? Why am I born? What is my responsibility? How do I pay for my existence, so to speak? 
in terms of the gift of, uh, of being a human being. In the, in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, for example, it's considered that when you're born as a human, it's the greatest opportunity. Opportunity that animals and plants and other and angels and other beings and different dimensions, they don't have that opportunity. As a human being, you have the opportunity for real growth and freedom, but most people waste that opportunity. And humanity generally doesn't take advantage of that. But you have this opportunity, so it's a great gift. So recognizing that this is an opportunity for, for really going in and taking a deep dive into my own evolution and development, that has been a major theme that has influenced my work for many years. For example, I've worked with so-called top people in terms of stretching the boundaries of the little me or the ego. For example, I, I did a, a two-year stint, maybe two and a half years with Tony Robbins at one point. He brought me in to help teach Tai Chi and Qigong to, to some of his trainers, basically. I got to know him really well, personally, very well. And to me, in terms of a kind of a pop psychology, Tony is the finest, the most pure expression of someone who is working inside the ego, to expand the ego, to expand the little me, to create success and happiness and all the kind of goals of, of so-called ordinary life, Tony, is, is, to me, is the most powerful exponent and teacher of how to do that. But isn't that, but isn't that also a trap? Oh, it is a total trap because you can get very good at that and you're still very much in duality because the bigger the front, the bigger the back. You know, the bigger the ego, the more the capacity for suffering because of the fear that arises that you'll lose all the sort of what you've believed you've been gained through the little me. But I, I wanted to explore all these different dimensions, including, again, the, the exponent of egotism, if you will. Uh, I would that's probably not share to say it that way, at least the point I was making a few moments ago. And then including very deep dives and contemplative practice where there is little or no ego, or what's called basically a a kind of absorb a process of the Vedic tradition of absorption into into beyond non-duality, basically into into emptiness. I've explored many and continue to explore many different moving pieces of the fabric of this movie that we're in, and it's helped me to understand people from many different walks of life, from many different traditions, from many different professions to go beyond. I've explored a lot of stuff, and it's really impacted the way I work with people. It included at a certain point when I was developing a successful career as an executive coach and consultant. And I worked with a number of organizations in the Boston area. You may, you may remember Forum. They were like a, a company. The founders of that uh, were friends of mine. I, I ended up working with them, with George Litwin, with uh, McClellan's organization. I've forgotten the name of that. It was on head and office just outside of Central Square, uh, Synectics, which is an early client of mine in Cambridge with Bill Gordon and their whole creativity model. I, I took that model to New York and worked with McCann Erickson and Interpublic, introducing a creativity workshop that they introduced as part of their offering with their own clients like Coca-Cola and Dole, GM and other companies in order to expand their advertising base for their own clients by presenting new product ideas to their clients through this Synectics process. So I've explored a lot of different things and continue to, but at a certain point in the working as a coach, and you've seen this working with families, 
where you spend a certain amount of time working on their values. And uh, you spend maybe, you have a two-day family retreat or whatever, and you spend a few hours on their values. And you go around and you ask people what the values are, and you have a flip chart, or you use value cards, or you use some methodology. So I, I was doing that long before I was working with families and family offices and foundations. This was in the strictly corporate applications and organizational app and nonprofit applications. But I would spend time with these executives in these meetings, and it was all like mom and apple pie, basically. The responses you would get would be productivity, better communication, all these, again, and people, they'd go around and they would express either what their preferred values were, their aspired values, or they would speak about values that were also politically correct that they deem politically correct. So I found that way of working around just asking people what their values were to be insufficient. And I, I just found myself repeating myself a lot. It was a lot of deja vu coming out of that. And I, I just no longer was enjoying that or feeling I was really providing uh, proper service. So that prompted me to take a deep dive into researching values as a topic in psychology, to seeing what methodologies had been developed over the years, to actually measure values. So I came across oh, the work of Rokic, who you may recall in your own studies. He was one of the first people to study human values. And I tried different methodologies. I trained in different assessment tools that were available in the market. And I finally, with a former partner of mine, we discovered a methodology that had been developed by, by two people. One was a Jesuit sociologist stationed in Malta, and an English sociologist who was also a, a high Episcopal priest, and he was living in Santa Cruz. They had developed what was called the Hall-Tona scale of values. And as I started to look into that and study it, I found it a very deep dive, a very profound methodology that was modeled after parallel systems of adult human development. And I'm talking here about Piaget and Erickson and Maslow and Fowler's work in spiral dynamics, Beck's work, and others, these two guys had developed a methodology working with assessing values and worldviews that were modeled on stages of adult human development and uh, parallel to these other methodologies that I mentioned, all of whom share a certain similarity generally between maybe five or six or nine stages of adult development. I ended up with my former partner licensing that technology for the IP, basically, and then building our own platform, we invested close to, I think it, it cost us $100,000 to, to basically license the methodology for 10 years. And then we, we also spent about a quarter of a million on building the platform because we wanted to build a, our own platform, basically. And my, my work for the last 20 years now has been in the coaching consulting area, has been including the work with families, by the way, because I met... I met John Warnick through, through Jay Hughes. When I was living in Aspen, I met Jay and we became friends. And we used to have lunch together once a month in Basalt or in Aspen. And I shared with him what I was doing and the values work. And he got very excited. So he introduced me into the family consulting business. And, and within a few months, I was doing a presentation of my work at the Fox Group in Chicago. Of course. And uh, and other had launched into the family office thing and, and family foundations and so on, and also the, the whole other area in philanthropy. 
through my connection with, with Jennifer McRae and, and Jeff Walker. But, but anyway, yeah, so I got a, I had took a deep dive into that family world, basically, and, and continue to have a few clients in that area and ended up working, for example, with a, over the course of seven or eight years with a uh, legendary American family, fourth generation of inherited wealth, international company that, they, that the great-grandfather started. And I've, I've worked with them on multiple generations of their kids using the values assessment as the way of, of actually looking at how the, how the values of the uh, generations have migrated and then using the values data as a way of, of creating conversations and then actually impacting family governance and, and matters like that, as well as choices of philanthropy and so on, based on the assessed empirical values of the individuals and the groups. So I met then John Warnick through Jay, and, and Jay, John was very interested. So through that, John invited me to become the Dean of Values of PPI. So I was an early part of the core team that, that, that launched PPI, and I, and I worked with it for about six or seven years, and then, then I, I found it just to be a little too pedestrian for my taste at this time. Did you have any insights into the way, I would say, the challenges of money and how it interferes with self-actualization? Absolutely, because sex, money, and power are like the great challenges, right? I've been very influenced by the work of who wrote Money and the Meaning of Life, what Middleman's work, that book, is about on my top on my list to recommend to people. And by the way, Needleman was a member of the Grudjeff work. So right. I never met him, but he was part of the West Coast branch in the San Francisco Foundation. So we share a number of friends and colleagues in the Grudjeff work. I never met him, but I love his work. His book on the American soul is a must read for insight into what we're dealing with today. We could talk a lot about that question, but the bottom line is that money becomes a, an illusionary support for a sense of self. If fundamentally, it doesn't deliver the goods at the end of one's life or at the end of even any particular success cycle, right? And you've seen this. We've seen this in families at every step of the way. Some people that I know come out of the multiple generation wealth, especially younger kids who don't have a sense of efficacy or agency, who've been raised in this petri dish, if you will, of, of wealth, have been protected from the so-called normal challenges of life, and they grow up with a, a deep sense of insecurity and impotency and a lack of authenticity. And that's carriage into the generation. So I've worked in that space, particularly with this family that I mentioned that I've been engaged with for many years, because the mom there who is driving the show around the, the human development personal development aspects to her children and her grandchildren and great-grandchildren and the whole family. There's like there are about 25 children and siblings and so on that I've worked with over multiple years. There's a big challenge there around, again, that Needleman really addresses so beautifully in The Money and the Meaning of Life. It's just at the end of the day, it can't deliver what it promises. And often people wake up to that a bit late in their life. What do you think, looking back now, what do you think Leary's legacy is? I think over time, I hope it'll be seen as a kind of an innovator that was, you know, like a prophet ahead of his time, if you will. I think he, you know, he was a major disruptor in, in a way that 
people like other great innovators are. They're, they're major disruptors. I'm not putting him in the league of, of the Freud or Einstein, but he really shook things up in a major way, really. And I th- he paid a price for that. Also, his again, he was, from my experience of him, and I, I lo- loved him and continue to love him deeply, he was very flawed. There were areas in his own emotional body that were not addressed, okay, with respect to his wife's suicide, his daughter's suicide, the, the multiple relationships and issues he had. Just He had a way of, because he, he had such a powerful mind and so creative, he had a ways often of skating through that. But there were times when I, I saw his vulnerability. I remember once visiting him in, his, in Beverly Hills at his house on the, on the hill, up in Bennett Canyon, up in wherever it was, and, uh, and I had introduced my Ellen, my wife, to him, my current wife, to him many years ago. And we're sitting around the table together, and he looks, he looks at me, looks me in the eye. He's very leans forward and just about eight inches from my face, and he says, "Am I okay? Am I okay?" How do you answer that? I said, yeah, Tim, you're fine. Speaking of which, how did you salvage your PhD in the midst of that whole scandal? I switched topics. I did a thesis on operate verbal conditioning. And what I did was I had to study. In retrospect, I could see it also as part of my own trajectory around awareness and consciousness. But my thesis was, how and when do people become aware that they're being verbally conditioned? What do you mean? In other words, if I'm in dialoguing with you and you're using, let's say, an NLP model or something like that to persuade me to buy something, how and when do I become aware that I'm being persuaded or being conditioned by you? Okay. Now, for example, NLP has some very specific techniques for doing that. I don't know if you're familiar with that area, but things like building rapport and anchoring and things like that. So when in a dialogue with another person, do you become aware? And if so, when and how do you become aware that someone is attempting to influence you and control you? That's what I did my thesis on. And that was doable. I designed the protocol, the interview protocols, and with my advisor, we created this methodology. And so that I was able to create that and do that maybe in six or seven or eight months so I could get out of there, basically. And then I had the offer from Maslow which was a fantastic offer for this young Jewish boy, Holocaust immigrant, to get a job at the major Jewish university, the first one other than the yeshiva in New York, to Abraham Maslow, who was also ahead of his time. He was a prophet. Because in his psychology department, you had the psychoanalysts on the left side, and you had your behaviorists on the right side, both of whom, like, were, they were fighting with each other, How did you escape analysis? I'm sure it was very prevalent in Boston back then. I I don't know. I I think I was able to bypass it through. I think Freud is, and I think psychoanalysis, it became fossilized and became became like a cult in a way. And and for many people, it's maybe a necessary but not sufficient condition. Because just even, for example, being able to act just a semi-trance state, laying on a couch, with the psychiatrist behind you, basically. And those elements, in terms of the sensory elements, the physical relaxation, the voice behind you, creates a kind of trance state or dissociation where you can access certain unconscious elements. 
I think that's a very interesting approach, basically. But early on, reading, I got attracted, for example, to to Jung because of the psychedelics, because there was so much more richness. What was Maslow's reputation at the time? What was where did he fit in? Well, he he struggled again. Coming back to the point I made just a few moments ago, he was the odd man out in his own department. He happened to be the chairman of the department the year he already position, so he wielded a certain amount of authority. But he would get ganged up on by his left wing and right wing. Again, the psychoanalysts and the cognitive behaviorists would gang up on him in, in addition to being up on each other. Typical academic turf wars, if you will, rationalized by scientific theories, ideologies. So he was insecure. One of the things about Abe that I found was his own insecurities. He worried, we have a term in Yiddish, fetching. Have you heard that term? It's complaining. Basically, he kvetched oh, yeah. a lot. Kvetch, yeah. <laughs> he was a son of, a, of an immigrant family who lived on the Lower East Side of New York. His family made barrels, storage barrels. And he, he escaped the Lower East Side, went to the University of Wisconsin, became a student of Harry Harlow, who was doing this unbelievable work with chimpanzees, taking young chimps away from their mothers, sounding abandonment theory. So that's where Abe stumbled on the, the hierarchy of needs was his work with Harlow, basically, creating neurosis in young chimpanzees by removing them during the critical imprinting window, a la Kronleiter-Renz in that work. So that's where he stumbled on the hierarchy of needs and developed that. But he was insecure because, again, in his own department, he felt a bit criticized. I believe he had tenure. But the hierarchy of needs work was just beginning to get really accepted and really getting traction. It was only later on that after he had left and joined, actually, Carl Rogers at the Institute in Laguna, where the, the business applications, what really created credibility for him in psychology, were the business applications. It was all, almost like a reverse success, if you will. In my opinion, that's where, where the success in, in the adoption of that model by organizations and businesses then became in its own way, a, a kind of legitimacy for it to be reintroduced back into psychology. And there's a whole renaissance going on now. So coming back to my values work, the, the, the value of the models that I've co-developed based on the original IP and a lot of R&D goes beyond the hierarchy of needs into other stages of development, if you will, into the more quantum level that I talked about a few moments ago and other pieces. I've used that model in the family arena, because I've created a, a family culture report based on, on the same dimensions, but changed the language and the approach uh, so that it can be utilized within, uh, within the family domain. And also, a, I started working on actually a, a report that should be used by investors and family uh, financial planners and estate planners around portfolio management using the values assessment as a way of identifying different risk tolerance strategies for different types of investments, whether it be value investing or capital preservation, or even at, for some families, increasingly private equity, angel investing, and so on. So I started working on, on, a, on an assessment tool that could be used that way. Did you learn anything interesting from Eckhart Tolle? Yes. We started reading Tolle, or Tolle, my wife and I, and were very taken by his work. 
it had been a number of years since I had been actively working with my own inner life. I had built up a certain kind of capital reservoir, if you will, and I had started to stray from maintaining my diligence in that area, a spiritual due diligence, if you will. And so it was a, a, pure, a shallow period for a while. And somehow, Tolly's work came in, the power of now, and I was really hit by that. And it, it brought me back into doing spiritual work again. First, with his approach, which wasn't really much of a methodology. It's more of kind of a, a pointer, if you will. And then we heard that he was offering a teacher training to a growth center not far from Vancouver, to the east of Vancouver, about, about a couple of hours in a, in a small town in a growth center. And we applied and were accepted. So we were a group of about 30 people. To the best of my knowledge, that was the only teacher training that he ever offered. And we spent basically three days with him where he basically told the story of his own awakening and the challenges he went through in terms of integrating that in the daily life. There wasn't much teaching, formal teaching about how to do stuff. Again, he's not particularly one who focuses on method, but it was a wonderful intro. And then when we came back to Boulder, we organized a series of programs based on the uh, Tolly work for people here in the Boulder community. And he came to Boulder to give a talk at, at one of the uh, spiritual churches here, one of the big gain of spiritual churches. And at the end of the talk, we, we were introduced to the audience as people that would be available if they were interested. So we were, give, we were given a good launching pad to do our work. So we did that for a number of years here in the Boulder area. And then I actually, I, in rereading, because I read it many times, a section in The Power of Now where he talks about the internal energy body. And that rang a bell for me because of all of my years in, in Tai Chi and Qigong, working with the energy. And he was talking about energy. Tolly was talking about using the chi or the energy body as a way of supporting presence awareness. And I had a major insight that came there that integrated all of my years of of working in meditation and in spiritual life, particularly his version of it now, with, with all the work I had done in Tai Chi and Qigong. And it prompted me, it motivated me to write an article on Qigong as a portal to presence, which actually was a really interesting approach to teach you understanding Qigong, not just simply as a method of health and martial arts training, but also as a method for supporting one's inner life, basically one's spiritual life. So... His work had a very uh, profound effect, again, uh, allowing me to create a kind of creative integration of two elements, two streams in my life, and also bringing me back to a focus on what remains my number one focus. Although, I, again, through the Gurdjieff work, I've been involved with ordinary life fully all along, because ne I, I never fell for the, the seduction of the kind of monastic brain scene, never, because I had such an exposure to the real thing. Do you have any advice for the modern users of psychedelics? Yeah, so yeah, that was a, that's why, for example, at one point, Jen and Ralph and Richard, aka Randas, wrote the, the Psychedelic Experience, which was an adaptation of the Tibetan Book of the Dead, a manual for death and dying, using that as a framework with the psychedelic experience of the around a high dosage ego death experience. This is LSD and DMT. This is not psilocybin. This is at another level of dissolving of the ego structure into emptiness, which is what the ego, what 
physical death actually entails from a Buddhist perspective is you basically are entering different realms called bardos, which are different heaven or hell states with different attractors and repulsors and things. And you have to be guided through the, all that labyrinth of these both malevolent and also supportive forces in order to maintain your eye on the ball, which they call the clear light, just consciousness. So it's, it's sometimes visualized as a clear light when people are dying the light of a tunnel. You know, there are many people report that in near-death experiences. But the Tibetan culture and the Buddhist tradition, they have it all mapped out. So even if you've done nothing in the course of your life to develop your capacity to die before you die, as the Sufis say, if you've not developed that, then you have a last chance with the Tibetans to be having someone read that manual to you as you're dying in order to keep your eye on the ball so that you have a better reincarnation opportunity next year. Do you think that light represents an ideal? It, re it represents an actuality of, of consciousness, of pure presence awareness, of pure consciousness. Of course, what do we mean by pure consciousness? Unless you've had the experience of pure consciousness, or at least an approximation of that, it's hard to understand what that means. But most people, when you say consciousness, post 99.9% .9 of the people experience that as thought, right? Thought or thinking or concepts. So aware that you're having this thought, or I'm aware that I'm having these words coming out of this mouth. So that is the background, if you will, which is the consciousness, it's the awareness, the presence. And it's called by many things in different traditions, called the Buddha nature. Some people call it God. Some people call it Brahman. Every tradition has their words for this consciousness. So that's the game. How do you develop that consciousness? Through the gift of incarnation as a human being. Because that's what we're here to discover. And that's what the teaching, the spiritual teachings are. Whatever the form, forms differ according to history and time and place and nutrition, all kinds of variables. So they wrote this book as a guide based on the Tibetan Book of the Dead to be used in a psychedelic setting to guide people through a death experience. Because when you begin to feel the body dissolving and you begin to feel these forces arising, it becomes very, can become very threatening and very contracted and holding on. And you can't let go, basically, into the pure love and trust of pure consciousness. And that's the transcendence. That's the transcendence. But then you have to reintegrate. That's right. And the key in any experience, spiritual, a spontaneous spiritual awakening or a chemically, biochemically induced simulation, you still have to integrate. Because people can have Zen experiences all the time, and many people do. Right. They're going to have an orgasm where they can see a sunset, or they're in their sailboats, or Martin Luther can be on the toilet. Who knows where it arises, right? It's causeless. It's grace. It's pure grace. Can't earn it. You can't negotiate with God to get it. So it happens when it happens, but that's just a one-off experience. Then you still have to function in daily life. So traditionally, the way people would function that way is they would become a monk. They would go to a monastery. So in a monastery, all the traditional triggers, sex, rock and roll, and gourmet food and clothing are eliminated to create a common experience of a low-density sensory experience, which don't create the temptations. So you're basically surrendering all of those patterns and habits 
and desires and surrendering those in the service of, of divinity, of seeking God. But you give up an ordinary life to do that. You can't function in ordinary life. You've been in a monastery for 10, 20 years, 30 years. You can't go back into ordinary life, with rare exception. You can't fund, you can't negotiate, you can't, you can't pay the rent, you can't deal with a nasty landlord, you can't. I remember once talking to Lama Govinda, a famous German Tibetan monk, and I met him in California one afternoon. We talked for a while, and he was complaining about his publishing. <laughs> and the, another traditional path is you become a yogi, right? You go to an ashram. And there you would devote yourself to yoga, to mental Raja yoga or other experiences of, of working under very specific conditions where stimulation would be eliminated or minimized, similar to the, the monk, but working more on the intellectual center than the emotional center, working more on the brain than the heart, if you will, the intellectual center. And then the third traditional pathway was called in Persia, and in India and other places called the F-A-K-I-R, which was the, the bed of nails person, right? The, you see them in India, people that from the time they were little children, they were like raised to sit on a bed of nails. They went blind staring at the sun, or they would adopt some contorted posture they would live in for years. They were beggars. And they, by overcoming the body, by overcoming any attachment to the body, through severe manipulation, and control and, and basically overcoming pain to its total bodily sensory subjection, uh, they, they could reach a certain level of consciousness, but it would be totally dependent on charity. They couldn't function in daily life. So that's another tradition. And it's well known, unless you've been in India and know about it. But people know about the bed of nails, but they don't know the history of that in connection with what I'm talking about. So those are the three traditional Paths for spiritual development in the old days. Then this man named George Gurdjieff comes along on the eve of the Russian Revolution. He shows up in, in St. Petersburg and he claims to have been traveling the last 20 years or more with a group of people called the Seekers of the Truth in Asia, Africa, Tibet, China, and, and in the Sufi tradition, and has assembled these teachings called the Fourth Way Teachings. And he presents them to a largely Western audience in Moscow and St. Petersburg, and develops a coterie of students and disciples that ends up being about 75 people that he actually walks them out of Russia at the beginning of the Bolshevik Revolution, where they're at risk of being killed by both the white Russians, the Tsarists, and the Bolsheviks, and they're masqueraded as a group of archaeological explorers. And Gurdjieff is supporting the whole thing. Most of them are, are, are czarists or white Russians, but there are a few Bolsheviks also who, you know, wake up, wake up early. Or people, mostly just people who are ordinary people who just, just weren't politically engaged. And anyway, he shows up in the West and develops a series of teachings called the Gurdjieff work or the fourth way. And my teacher was in that lineage. Mr. Allen worked with Gurdjieff, and he was a Dutchman who actually, up to the outbreak of World War II, was fighting the Nazi resistance in, 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 in Holland, was a concert pianist and a PhD in chemistry, and a very devoted student of Gurdjieff, as were many other people of that era who were very successful in ordinary life, people in the World Bank, other institutions, in the arts and sciences, all over. He had a way of living in the world. Totally in the world. The world yeah. was the laboratory in which elements 
of the monk, the fakir, and the yogi would be utilized to create a harmony of the three centers, to create a harmony of the intellectual, emotional, and moving center, the gut brain, was called the dantian in Chinese alchemy. But when those three are unified and developed, according to what the individual needs, they become unified and become the basis for a level of creating more sustainable embodied presence, moment-to-moment embodied awakeness, presence, awareness. So it involves all three. And every individual is different. I came into the work with a dominant intellectual center. In my history in a Jewish intellectual family, culture and so on, the Harvard education, all of that. So I, I came in leading with my head, basically. So one of the first things Mr. Nolan did for me was to get me in, engaged with my body. He had me digging foundations. He had me doing framing for construction. He had me doing sweating a pipe and doing electrical work, learning hand-eye coordination, learning the sacred dances and movements. He took an intellectual like me and had me complement what the imbalance in my own system was with respect to the body, and then later the heart, the heart model, which comes for me to be in last, if you will. But for people, for example, who were more blue-collar types, mechanics and builders and plumbers and tradespeople, for example, he would have them work in the library, abstracting phrases of books on three-by-five cards, this was pre-computer days, to exercise their intellectual function, because that was what they needed to work on. So the teaching I had was very tailored to me and very concrete and was all about living an ordinary life. And frankly, that is, I think, the more emerging paradigm in spirituality today. And that's and Gurdjieff had a lot to do with that, a whole lot to do with that. Not the only one. I've been, my wife and I have been working with a woman's spiritual teacher the last four years who has her own version of that. She's had no exposure to Gurdjieff at all, but her teaching is smack in the middle of working in ordinary life with all the conditions and neurotic patterns, with all of the roles and responsibilities that we take on, all of that. Like chop wood, carry water, live ordinary life. So good there. I really appreciate this. And uh, it's been great to talk to you. And I hope we get to talk again soon. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you like the podcast, please share it with your friends and take a minute to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We appreciate it.